In this episode, we're talking with Adam Alonzo, CEO of Build Inc., about the awesome work his organization is doing in Chicago suburbs to help at-risk youth find direction, and how his model is actually being replicated in other cities around the nation. Welcome, welcome. You're listening to The Science of Social Impact, a podcast from Creative Good. We're on a mission to educate and inspire you to make social impact a key ingredient in your business and life. Thanks for joining. The time to make an impact is now. So it's 1995, and a young man is working for a nonprofit as the director of after-school programs. He's working in a church basement, and he's closing up the church for the day. And a young man who's about 15 walks in, very rough around the edges, looks unkept and distressed. And the kid asks if the pastor is in. The director of after-school programs says he's not in, but he'll be back tomorrow. The kid looks disappointed as he walks away. And the director of after-school programs hears a voice saying, call him back. Friends, today we get to meet Adam Alonzo, CEO of Build Inc. in Chicago, Illinois. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. So let's get right into what you believe. For anyone listening to this, they're going to stick around if they relate to what you believe. So tell us about a core principle that you just know to be true after your life's work so far. (laughs) Uh, Sure. Uh, I, one of the things I've learned uh, since starting out in 1995 um, is really about being honest. Uh, and I think we talk a lot about that today in terms of being honest with yourself. And, and certainly that's absolutely a must. You have to first be honest with yourself, your shortcomings, things you're good at, things you need to improve, you know, just having that uh, kind of honest discussion. And I, I think when you share that story of the, my encounter with Abraham back in 1995, um, I was in a place to be open and honest about everything I thought I knew. And in that encounter with him, I realized I didn't really know anything. Um, and I embraced that I didn't know that. And I think it was that honesty with myself, um, kind of confessing, if you will, to the young man that I wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, made me real. Um, And I found that throughout my career, the more you can be honest with things that didn't work the way you expected them to, being honest with others, it really does carry a lot of weight. And I think it also um, makes you more relatable and people will want to trust you if you're able to share the truth. And sometimes, you know, we know our truths don't always feel good. I'm a big believer that sometimes the truth hurts. Um, of course, correct, make adjustments and uh, get back on the, get back on track and keep moving forward. So I would say that principle for me is really about being honest. 
I love it. So that core principle to highlight that always be honest, even when it's hard. We could probably even say even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Especially, why, absolutely. Why is it harder to be honest sometimes? Uh, well, I, I think because we don't want to show that we don't know what we're doing. Uh, we don't want the other to think that we don't have the answers in particular when they've uh, when it seems as if we might have or should have all the answers or know what we're doing, uh, assumptions get made. And I just think it's hard, right, to sometimes say, I'm not good at this. Uh, and in my role, I think it's especially important to know what I'm not good at and to bring the right people in to help do pieces that I'm not good at, to help educate and learn from those people who are better at I and certain things. And at the end of the day, I think we're all kind of uh, gifted with things that we're great with and things that we're not. But when you bring all the pieces together, I think it all works. And so being honest, especially when you know you're not good at something or confessing that you're not good at something, it is tough. It's not an easy, um, it's not easy to always do. In particular, like I said, when people are looking at you to have all the answers. And honesty is probably something that you've learned over the course of your career. That career started in 1995 in nonprofit, and uh, you've been able to work in a couple different nonprofits uh, leading up to 2015 when you started with Build Inc. in Chicago. Talk to us about getting started with build, how you found them, how you started there and why you started with build. Sure. Uh, well, it's an interesting story actually, because uh, when you, when I started out in the field in 1995, um, I learned of build very early on uh, because of their work in the community and in particular around creating uh, space um, and ceasefires between gangs when they were warring with one another. Um, and that's how I became familiar actually with Build. I remember there were times when we were working at the teen center, um, there was a gang war happening in the neighborhood and we would wait for that call from Build to say, okay, we've got a ceasefire, get your kids home. You know, you may want to shut down program for the rest of the week while we're figuring it out with the guys. Um, and we relied on those calls, uh, in addition to all the great workshops and, uh, things that they were doing around gang avoidance, substance abuse prevention. So I, I've known of Bill since early in my career. So to be here um, is certainly an honor to to be leading this organization that I had great respect for when I first started and certainly still do today. And when you first started in 2015, what was your first title when you entered the organization? Uh, I was executive director. Uh, and quite honestly, in my mind, uh, the title change to CEO, Chief Executive Officer, uh, in my mind, is equivalent to an executive director. And people who may hear this may absolutely say, no, it's not. But my range of my work and what I do uh, really is still the same as when I started. Uh, it's just a title and position, a title change really is what we did. Sometimes we'll get emotional here. Sometimes we'll get technical. Just technically speaking, why why was there a change in title? And maybe if you want to give someone who listening who doesn't know the definition of an executive director versus a CEO, paint a little bit uh, on that picture. <laughs> sure. Uh, 
So we entered into, uh, as we were growing, we needed to create a position that was the chief operating officer, uh, which actually is what spurred on a change in all of the positions. So uh, my position title changed to chief operating officer. Our director of development changed to a chief uh, uh, development officer and our director of finance became the chief financial officer. And, and I guess I, I will say this, um, and, and certainly not to minimize titles by no means, because for some they're very important. Um, it, it was also a signaling that as an organization was turning 50 and we were growing, we were building infrastructure, uh, we're getting ready to launch some really big things, uh, that we wanted to have titles that matched with the magnitude of the work that was being called and asked of us. Um, and so that shift to the sea levels uh, is what prompted that. And we did that about a year ago uh, as we were restructuring and growing. And so the other part to your question is what is the difference between so what does an executive director, chief uh, executive officer do? Um, I think you, the way I kind of think of the position is uh, from a technical standpoint, you've got to raise money. Uh, you've got to provide vision and direction for the organization. Uh, you've got to keep people believing in the vision and following and growing along with you. And then you've got to uh, work with your bosses, right? You have a board of directors and you have to make sure that you are a peacekeeper, um, that you can also negotiate and that you can really try to see both sides of the equation uh, and try to find a middle ground where there can be, uh, we can come to um, some agreement. And at the end of the day, I would say the number one role for the executive director, chief executive officer, is really to raise money for the organization so it can survive and thrive. Absolutely. So in your, in your uh, tenure, your career here since 95, you've been solving problems. Nonprofits should, at their core, solve problems. What is the problem that you're today most passionate about solving in the world? Sure. Um, I think it's really, especially now and in Chicago in particular, and where we're located um, in the Austin neighborhood, is really solving for violence, youth violence in particular. Um, I consider that my career um, over 20 years has really been about helping young people see that they have potential in a future. Um, and to be, to be that guide by the side, right, to help support them in ways that maybe others in their family can't or wouldn't support them. Um, and so I think today, Build was solving for a problem back in 1969 when, when the organization started, which was how do you get kids out of the, off the streets and back in school and jobs um, and out of gangs. And we are still working on that issue today as um, you know, poverty has increased, as the disparities in some of these neighborhoods has increased and gotten greater. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we really are trying to solve, to reduce violence so that kids don't have to worry about coming outside to play, that they don't have to worry about going, when they leave school, walking home, they should be able to get home safely without worry of, or threats of violence. Absolutely. So the mission of BUILD is to engage at-risk youth in schools and on the streets to help them realize 
their potential and contribute to their communities. So you said that, you know, youth violence, uh, helping youth has been one of your core missions, one of the problems that you're most passionate about solving. Always love to challenge uh, our listeners to think bigger. And I think as in charity as a whole, we need to think bigger and start to learn the numbers behind problems. Can you give us some shape sure. as to exactly uh, if your mission is to engage at-risk youth, like how many are there and how many uh, is BUILD able to successfully help every year? Sure. So I, I, over the course of BUILD's uh, 50 years of service, we've served over 100,000 young people. Um, each neighborhood that we're in, we're in uh, five different neighborhoods, has uh, a different uh, youth population. So for instance, here in Austin, uh, we have about 35,000 young people under the age of 18 out of a total population of about 97,000. Uh, so it's about a third of the community is young. And our ability to reach the young people, we service probably about 3,000 young people every year. And when I say that, um, let me explain that and break that down a little bit more. So to serve 3,000 young people means that we have an intake an assessment, we work with them typically over the course of an entire year. Um, they're actively engaged in our programs. They may be attending, you know, three to, three or more times a week. Uh, we do a mid-year assessment. We work with them on a mutual accountability plan, uh, which basically is, what do you want to do while you're here with Bill? How can we help you? What are you looking to do? How are you trying to improve yourself? and let us figure out this plan together so we can work side by side on that. Um, now, outside of sort of that level of engagement with young people, we also do about 50 community events a year. And it's through those community events uh, that we reach um, as many as this past year, we did our wrapping up our numbers, we've reached over 8,000 people um, across Humboldt Park, East Garfield Park in Austin, um, through the different events that we do in the community. And so those might be light touches, right? We have an event, they come out, they participate, they get information, um, they want to know more about BUILD, we bring them on board, they get engaged. So when you think about the folks that we're touching over the course of a year, as we've grown, uh, we're able to serve uh, almost 10,000 folks. And by service, I think one could argue, well, if I come to an event, uh, is that really serving people or young people? Um, and, and there's some truth to that. So are we doing intensive mentoring at that moment? No. Um, are we helping them with their homework? Absolutely not. But I tell you what we are doing is engaging with them. People are talking to young people. People are having conversations with them and, and sharing with them. Um, just being kind and cordial and checking in with young people. That's an engagement, right? And sometimes it starts as simple as a hello. Sometimes it starts with, hey, how was school? What's going on? You know, what's your summer looking like? And a dialogue gets started. So um, that's what our numbers are looking like uh, as we continue to grow uh, and what we've done just this past year that we wrapped up. And our year is a uh, our fiscal year begins July 1st and ends June 30th. So that's what our, our years look like. Wow. So you had, you gave a couple awesome numbers there. You said 97,000. I think you're referring to the population in that specific 
community and 2,500 under 18 and build serves about 3000 at risk youth. So how is build able to essentially serve a majority of the youth in the community, many of which must be at risk as you compare those numbers? Well, um, you know, it's a variety of programs that we're, that we offer, right? So, um, we've got programs that serve our young kids who are in grade school. Um, and that's, you know, first through eighth grade, we've got a teen center here on site at our headquarters in, in Austin. Um, and then we do a lot of work out in the high schools, uh, with our high school age population, then, uh, our young people who are are not in school and not employed. Those are the are older youth typically, and those are the ones that we're working with to make sure we get them back on track. So um, the way that we're able to serve young people is just by having a lot of different options for them. There are many entry points to the work, um, or many entry points to our program. So it could be through a school, it could be through our teen center, uh, it could be from a referral, it could be that a parent has come and said, "Hey, I want." sign my son up or my daughter up for programs could be that they've met us at you know our community family nights or basketball tournaments or uh, things that we have going on out in the neighborhood um, and that's how we we reach our kids and that's how we're able to serve them mm, and no question it's good work in some of the research that I did leading up to this conversation uh, one of the interesting statistics that I was really excited to ask you about and to get a deeper explanation on is the Chicago Center for Youth Violence Prevention reports that the estimated cost of youth violence is more than $21 billion annually. And the first question that I asked when I read that was, I wonder what the costs are to youth violence. And so if you could, can you explain what are the costs that we probably do know, but probably the ones that we don't know to youth violence? Well, yeah, and I can speak even more specifically to, to Bill's work. And so I guess if to kind of simplify this a little bit, there's a couple of ways that we look at, you know, what the cost benefit is and, and the dollars that we spend and what that really does in terms of savings for society as a whole. Um, so if we're serving young people who are just by nature have been born, are growing up and raised in a community that has high incidence of violence and high incidence of poverty, right? Um, those young people alone, you know, for every dollar that we spend, so we a young person, to serve a young person like that in a year cost build $630. The savings to society is about $16,000. So if we're able to reach these young people who have not yet entered into um, acts of violence, who are just merely having every day living and growing up in this neighborhood, if we provide the programming that we do for these types of young people, every year we're able to save $16,000 per young people. Now, by contrast, if we're working with um, our young people who are getting involved, who are justice involved, um, for every, we spend a roughly $2,000 a year to serve one young person. Um, but the cost benefit jumps up to about $92,000 a year that we save society, our community, 
uh, with one year of service. So when you think about the investment and why it's worth a $2,000 investment into one of these young people, it does cost, it does, there's a great savings to our communities because, you know, what it costs to incarcerate a young person, what it costs to go through the system, what it costs for when they come back out, and then the arrest, and then the rearrest. When you add all of these things up, and that's not even assuming that they've shot someone or, or have done some act of violence against someone, which when you tally those costs up, you know, that, that price tag goes up markedly. So for Build, it's our belief um, absolutely that you invest, and the investment is not that large if you really think about it. $2,000 to serve some of the hardest to serve young people is quite honestly such a small investment. But it's about the going rate, uh, I would say, certainly in, across Chicago, about what most organizations like Build invest in a young person who is just as involved or getting involved. Um, you know, some programs will pay more and have more dollars to invest, but that's probably about average for uh, this region. Wow. And numbers are great because they tell such a story. And uh, I also love the transparency of numbers. Can you give us the quick version of how do you figure out that number of uh, $92,000 a year cost to society? Well, it's a not an easy number to come up with that's for sure we actually had a corporation come out system uh and you may know them they do the elevators and they're a multi-global conglomerate uh, and they uh, reach out to us almost every year uh, to do this what they call a 24 24 challenge so they bring senior leaders from across the globe together um, in Chicago for training, and then they work with a nonprofit to solve for a problem. So we challenge them to come up with kind of what is the what is the cost, the economic impact of giving, and what does it cost to us um, for every dollar we spend? What are we saving? So they comb through um, documents and documents, all of our financials. They talk to staff. They talk with. Um, you know, the types of kids, the types of programs, the types of services, looking at the dollar amount. So to come up with what they did uh, took them certainly their 24-hour challenge, and they worked in about, a, there were 20 uh, people who were working on this, so four teams of five, and they were able to come up with the number uh, that I shared with you earlier. It's tricky because every year things change, right? So your cost of living allowance. So the one person who was working with Johnny, a built staff member, may get a 3% cost of living adjustment. So now, you know, the cost of serving Johnny just went up a little bit more. Uh, transportation, gas, you name it, all the costs associated with doing business have gone up. And so that rate can change and vary a little bit year over year. But in terms of approximate and what we work with and what we say, this is the numbers. And that's how we arrived at it. Uh, and I remember the process taking, I was glad. This is one of those things, it's about honesty. I did not know how to answer that question when they reached out. And they said, well, how do you figure this? And I was like, I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin to answer this. This is why we're asking you for this challenge, uh, which was good because they come from a very, business, 
background and this is the way that they're thinking about the number. They have uh, a lot of, you know, outsider eyes, as I like to call them, and looking in to say, have you considered this? This is how I think we make, it makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about all your numbers. Um, and so I think it was a really good exercise, certainly for myself, for, for all of us here in the agency who participated along with them, because it is about how you tell your story, right? And people, you know, the anecdotal stories are great, but there are those who just want the numbers. I, you know, I don't want to hear the feel-good stories because I know them. I want to know your numbers. And so one of the things that Bill has had to do, I have had to do, is to get much better at telling the story with your numbers and digging into your data in a way that is deeper, that really connects the dots more closely um, to tell a more complete story. Because there are those with very discerning um, questions and those who really want to know from a numbers point of view, what does that really equal to? No doubt. The numbers are so important, both from understanding the scope of the problem and also understanding the implication of the solution and the, especially sure. the solution that build is providing. We just heard from you uh, the difference between what it costs to provide the support versus what it would cost to not provide it. And there's a tremendous gap. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful story. So you are the fearless leader at build and you obviously have a rocking team over there, but uh, be honest with us. Tell me about a time when you had absolutely no idea what you were doing and tell me about the first three steps you took after you realized you had no idea. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'll tell you, we, so we're, we're embarking on a capital campaign. Uh, and it was back in 2016 as we were starting to grow, I just happened to mention, Hey, you know, we might be getting tight on space. Um, so just kind of planting the seed out there, but I didn't know what that meant because I'd never done a capital campaign. So I wasn't suggesting we do a capital campaign. I was just asking the question and wanted the board to think about it. Um, but as it became more and more real, as we were growing, um, and internally here, uh, we've had to add more office space. We've divided space up. <clears throat> we've, uh, moved out an entire part of the building to across the street to accommodate uh, cubicles, which kills me sometimes when I think about it because that was program space. So it became real. So the thing I didn't know how to do was a capital campaign. And um, the first thing I did was reached out to an organization here in the city that does work across the Midwest with nonprofits and figuring out if they're ready to do a capital campaign or not. So. I engaged them to do a feasibility study. Um, and I'll tell you, it was a process. The questions, when you talk about numbers and asking, well, what do you envision? And what does this community need? And what do your kids need? And what do the staff think? And really diving down deep in a way, asking questions that in my head, I hadn't even gone there. It was more like, hey, we need some extra space. What should we do? So that was the first thing I did. After we got our study back, uh, circled back with the board to engage them and say, hey, we're now getting to a place. Uh, this is what our three options could be. What do you think? Um, and the third thing I learned, again, not knowing any of this, was, wow, uh, being put through the paces. We 
had to work on a 10-year projected budget before the board would approve a go-forward with this capital campaign. Um, our CFO and I, we worked tirelessly for weeks. I remember being here late to like 9 o'clock at night, and my brain hurt. I was like, <laughs> I have never been asked to think into the future so far, think about a break-even number, think about all things that you have to really project in the future. So talk about flying blind in space, no clue whatsoever. Um, but we did it. We were able to put that together, share it with the board. The board thought it was great, felt like we had done all of our due diligence and approved a capital campaign. So you asked me what I what something I've never done that I didn't know how to, capital campaign. I'll tell you, I've had a crash course in all things that you're supposed to do and not do. So. <laughs> And sometimes that's, well, probably oftentimes that's the best way to learn it just by jumping into the water. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think, you know, it, it was a little, uh, it, it was crazy for me just because again, I, I can be, you know, I can dream it, I can see it, but all the nuts and bolts to be able to put it together to get there was the one thing I knew for sure that I was absolutely flying blind. And uh, I was thankful, am thankful that I have a lot of great board members who help us to think it through. Our work with that organization, I did the feasibility study, was a good uh, support. And then just the people I work with, we just labored through it. And no one, no one complained about it because we were all, you know, just super excited about the potential. So that, that energy really pushed us to stretch ourselves uh, and to get it done. So you decide that it's time for builds to embark on this capital campaign. And then really quick in one sentence uh, for someone listening who doesn't know the definition, what is a capital campaign for a nonprofit? Uh, it is the plan to build something new or to remodel your space to add additional space. Um, and typically your capital campaign is outside of your operating, your annual operating budget. So you, it's an additional set of fundraising uh, goals that you have. Copy that. So you decide that it's time to embark on this, this journey. And um, you know that you don't necessarily have the technical expertise yet because you've never done it. Talk to, me about <laughs> right. the, the, talk to me about the belief side of it. Because obviously if you didn't believe that you could do it or that you needed it and you didn't have the technical expertise, you probably wouldn't have even started. So there had to be something on the belief side that to you said, I, I got to keep going because this is a need. Sure. Um, you know, the beliefs, the several, I guess I would say, um, just kind of what was really, what's happening is that we are literally out of space on the inside. So, it, there's a question, do you stop growing because you're out of space um, and kind of just keep things where they're at? Uh, or do you push the envelope and say, we are gonna grow and we're gonna do something big? I think the dream, and in particular, when you're here in this part of the Chicago and the West Side, um, the West Side, unfortunately, has been robbed of many economic opportunities, has been robbed of, of quite a few things that are important for young people. Um, 
And so to be able to build a state-of-the-art pain center that will serve all of community, um, why doesn't this community deserve that, right? Why is, why is that only something that a neighborhood that has means and wealth should have, that their kids should have access to? And I'm a big believer that you've got to change the narrative. If you want to turn neighborhoods around, you've got to give people hope, but not just speak it. You've also got to show and demonstrate tangible results of that hope that you keep speaking about. So to build this state-of-the-art teen center here, that's 45,000 square feet, three floors, gym, all sorts of arts, uh, music studios, a wood shop, game room, you name it, uh, we'll have it all here. These young people in this community, these families in this community need to see that we value what they have to offer. We value them in this neighborhood and we don't want their kids to suffer. We don't want their kids to feel like they're left out while they watch, you know, kids from all over other parts of the city have access to great programs, great facilities, and to thrive. And so that dream, while I don't know, I've never built, I've never done a capital campaign, I've never done a $20 million capital campaign, but the belief that this community deserves and our young people deserve to have this as a rite of passage for them growing up and have access to, that supersedes everything. And, you know, I, I'll be clear, there's a lot of pressure. I've never raised $20 million, even going back to being honest. I, I say that openly. Now, some would say you shouldn't say that because you're going to make people worry that you can't do it. That For some, that may be the case. I'm being honest. But my belief in what should happen here exceeds the fear of me having never done a capital campaign at a $20 million level. And I know that there is enough money out there in this world, in the city, to make this become a reality. This isn't about what Adam wants. This is really about how we're serving a need for a community that doesn't have opportunities like this. And what I've shared about this vision <clears throat> openly is that this is for the community. This is not builds. This is for the community so that everyone has access to a grandparents, parents, young people, right? We want everyone to feel that this is an anchor uh, facility that they can come, they can exercise, they can use the gym, they can get workshops, they can come to the farm, they can participate at the art door pavilion. There's so much that they have access to and do that brings light into their lives, that shares uh, hope with them and gives their young people this beacon in their neighborhood that they can come to every day. So yes, I've never raised 20 million, but yes, my belief in that there's enough money out there to fund something on this scale and that there are enough people out there who believe, just as I do, that it's a tragedy that young people grow up missing these great opportunities. And again, as we talked about numbers, what's the impact? So we do a $20 million investment here. And think about the young people whose lives could be impacted and positively changed for the rest of their life versus not doing anything. And not that what we have isn't good enough. It's just not enough space for us to do even more. So that's what drives this whole process. And again, it kind of 
eclipses any of the naysayers or even just, you know, sometimes you get in your own head and you're like, oh, am I really going to raise 20 million? Um, and, and that for me is allowing doubt and fear to enter. And you've always got to, if you, if you believe in your heart, what you've just said, then that will always supersede and should eclipse all the negative and all the things that you would doubt about a process as big as this. So well said to, no, I know it's not the same or the same comparison, but uh, if we look at $2,000 a year investment into an at-risk youth, uh, helps alleviate $92,000 a year in cost to society. That's 46 times in the gap there. If we look at, if we're going to invest $20 million into build, we're possibly looking at $920 million in potential cost savings. And I know it's not an apples to apples comparison, but just sure. keep with that impact comparison of uh, the work that builds doing is, you know, essentially possibly impacting 46 times uh, what the implication would be if they didn't do it. And so this is a huge investment in, into sure. building. And uh, you had no idea what you were doing when you started it, but the steps that you took were one, you believed and you were a hundred percent bought in. You believed it in your heart. And uh, the second one, you had a clear vision of why you wanted and needed the money. And third, you ran the numbers, which took every last ounce. It sounds like a <laughs> to run the numbers, but you did it because they tell a story and they're unbiased and they don't lie. And those were your, your three steps. You believed you had your vision and you ran the numbers and you pushed forward. Yep. Absolutely. What would we be surprised to know about you? Um, uh, well, uh, what would it be? so I, I have a couple of things. Like I, I present pretty much who I am. So, um, I never take myself too seriously. Uh, I do definitely like a joke and a good laugh. Um, but you know, uh, my dad was a gardener. And, uh, so when I'm not here at work, I do enjoy working in the garden at home. Um, and I always wondered, uh, you know, why it was he loved his garden so much. And I started growing up, it was like the Garden of Eden. We had every flower, we had roses. Like it was this tiny little plot of land that we had attached to our yard, our house. But he made that into this beautiful oasis. And so as, as a man and a father and a husband, I get why you appreciate sort of your little oasis. So I, I like to garden. Uh, and that's kind of my time away from everything just to, to uh, make something nice. Awesome. And you're, you're mildly famous for someone who really loved soccer in the 90s. Would they, would they have seen you anywhere in particular? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say I was mildly famous. But uh, in 1994, I was in the opening ceremonies of the World Cup when it was here at Soldier Field and uh, represented uh, Mexico. Um, and I had the uh, distinct honor of wearing one of these huge Brazilian costumes, which were soccer balls. Uh, and we had to, in a whole opening ceremonies performance, and then uh, representing each country on stage when it was our turn. So it was fun. I was, what, like 22 years old at the time, 23. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to even think, like, how did I even get connected to that opportunity? 
I don't even know that I remember, but that was one thing I just like so random and weird that I would ever have that opportunity, but it was fun. And so that's something about me that I don't think so many people know. You could never, you could never write it. Could you, the journey that we take uh-uh. you just could never, ever. Uh-uh. Write it. <laughs> so, At all. And, and I'm glad that we don't, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. We couldn't, we couldn't write as good of a story. That's for sure. Uh, uh-uh. After all your work uh, from 95 to now, uh, and in a, you know, honestly, a, a tough space to be in where you've heard, seen, felt some tough things. Is there anything that, that scares you today? Um, I, sure. I, I think, you know, the, the thing that drives me the most uh, day over day, and I think why we've been in such tremendous growth mode is my fear that kids are dying every day. And, and that's the truth. Uh, There was a point in 2016 when Austin was on the increase for the being the most violent neighborhood um, of all the 77 Chicago neighborhoods. And it just, everything became crystal clear at that point. We have to deliver Everyone here has to engage young people with high quality and none of the BS, none of the soft, like, you know, engagement. We really need to make sure these kids are dying every day and literally within less than a mile of where we're at. So that fear of young people dying has driven me to really push this organization that has 50 years of history and work in it to be its best, to operate and fire on all of its cylinders and to dream big for these young people. So time, you know, uh, you don't have a lot of time to just figure everything out. Sometimes you just got to respond, get in there, do the work again, because young people every day are dying. They're trying to that TV First thing in the morning here in Chicago, what do you hear? It's like the tally overnight, 50 shootings, you know, how many people died? And that was and is still the thing that I fear. Um, And knowing that a couple of our young people have been shot and thankfully have survived and we've had others, a few others who have not, that that is my fear, having our young people have their lives cut short. Well, I'm really uh, grateful to you for working in that space to uh, to act on that fear and to try to reverse uh, the the trend. Um, so, if you to close us out here, if you had 30 seconds in front of the entire world, the whole globe, what gets to watch your 30 second message? What are you gonna use that time to share uh, as a personal message or as a message from Bill? Yeah, um, you know, I think the message is is don't be afraid to engage others. Um, you know, that, that meeting in 1995, I will tell you, I was wildly unprepared to meet him. And everything about me was probably wrong in many ways, meaning no training. I, I honestly was afraid of this kid. I didn't know if he was going to hurt me. I didn't know what to expect. And I think everyone, you just, you never know. And so to be open to engage with young people, 
be open, to be honest with yourself in those moments, and not to be afraid to learn in those spaces that are hard and that basically hold the mirror up to your face. Um, so every opportunity that you see with a young person is an opportunity to potentially change your life. Awesome. What is the best way for people listening to connect with Bill to find out more about what you do? Sure. Uh, you can connect with us uh, through our website, which is www.buildchicago.org. We are on all the social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, a little shameless plug, we have a great podcast uh, that just was released this week uh, with a conversation with a uh, young man who is an ex-game member um, and the commander of the 15th District. Uh, have a great conversation together. So great story to listen to. Uh, and you can find out that's how you can connect with those. Wow, that's powerful stuff. We'll make sure we link to all that in the show notes. And to close you guys out, we are going to end with the story that we started at the beginning. So it's 1995 and Adam, the director of after school programs, is working in the basement of a church. A young man, 15 years old, walks in looking disgruntled, disheveled, and asks if the pastor's there. Adam says that he's out. He'll be back tomorrow. And the, the kid walks away, and Adam hears a voice saying, call him back. And Adam yells, what do you need? And the 15-year-old says, I need God. And they end up talking, passing on life stories, and turns out that that young man, who was named Abraham, was actually on his way to commit suicide. And Adam got to know Abraham that day, and many, many, many days after that, learned about sacrifice and unconditional love, and really went to deep, dark places with Abraham and back. And that was where Adam cemented his purpose, working with this population of at-risk youth. And you never know where the next Abraham is, and you never know if you could be the person to help the next Abraham. It's uh, listening to your gut and doing what you can when you can to make it happen. So we've been talking today with Adam Alonzo from Build Chicago, and he's taught us to always be honest, even when it's hard. Uh, been a great story to hear and we thank you adam for sharing it thank you i appreciate it thank you so much awesome take care man you too thanks so much for being with us on this episode of the science of social impact a podcast from creative good go make an impact in your world and we'll see you next time